This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello you're listening to the times red box politics podcast i'm patrick mcguire matt shawley's off this week so you've got me until friday today we'll be looking ahead to what 2023 holds for the conservatives but first it's our economist panel and it was a cracker today with finkelvich danny finkelstein and david aronovich up next Meet the Cerberus of columnists, the Janus of journalism, and the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. Uh, I don't often ca- catch that uh, that jingle uh, myself because I'm always quite busy at this time. It really is ridiculous. I see. You kind of step in here and you just diss our jingle. No, I I thought I might find two sympathisers here, but uh, you know maybe it plays <laughs> maybe it plays to both of your egos. I don't know. Uh, uh, good to good to hear from you both. Uh, any New Year's resolutions, Danny? I'm uh, not a big one for New Year's. Anyway, for, uh, being Jewish, the New Year was actually in September. Of course, so. of course, David. Um. Uh... I've got so many um, uh, that they're preposterous, but I can't tell you what any of them are. Okay, good. Well, uh, let's uh, let's move on from that seasonal uh, seasonal small talk, shall we? And get straight into the meat on the front page of this morning's Times. A government source uh, tells the paper this morning that the strikes will mean a generation of passengers right off the railways uh, for good. Uh, Danny, is that true? Or is that just uh, negotiating talk? Um, I don't think it's sort of either. I can't imagine it'll have much uh, negotiating impact. Um, and I don't think it's probably true. We always think that these things kind of have longer tails than they do. Of course, people do find, you know, there was a bread strike um, in, in the 1970s and people moved to other kinds of, away from sliced loaves and never completely <laughs> moved back. So it do, people do change their habits a bit. <laughs> I'm glad you found that so amusing. But um, David. I do, I do. I, having lived through it, the one thing I cannot recall at all is the great bread strike of the early 70s. It's completely vanished from my memory and I want to hear more about it. Tell me more, Danny. <laughs> That's unfair, David. I, there was a there was a sliced bread a, a strike in the sliced sliced bread manufacturers, and people moved over to other kinds of loaves. Uh, but uh, the um, so we do, the, what I'm really saying is that people do change their uh, behaviour, um, and um, it's not therefore utterly ridiculous. Mm. But for most people, most of the time, there's kind of one predominant form of transport to their destination, and 
you know, something else will be very much less convenient. So I don't think this will have that effect. Uh, what's your sense of where the the public is at on all of this, David? Do you think they're tiring of uh, tiring of Mick Lynch? Um, I'm still I'm, I'm still slightly coping with something being the the worst thing since sliced bread. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, I, I, the, well, we have polls about this. I mean, there's no it's pointless. Most people uh, are not affected by this. Mm. Uh, in any substantial way, or if they are, they're occasionally affected. And when they're occasionally affected, they're fed up about it. It's commuters who are regularly affected by this, and commuters are only a relatively small proportion, commuters by train, that is, of the population, and largely concentrated in the southeast. So, um, which explains, incidentally, why there can be such a furore about these things among some of the people who are most affected by them, uh, i.e. people who commute into Westminster uh, and other places. Um, uh, so, uh, but looking at the polls, um, uh, just before Christmas, it was roughly a third, a third, a third, a third were in support of the structure, which is very unusual. And you can only think that was people who don't travel by train. A third didn't like the strikes um, uh, at all, were against them. And a third said they just simply didn't know, which is a very kind of high proportion. I don't know whether that's changed significantly. You'd anticipate that people would become more antipathetic towards the strikes as they go on. That's usually been the pattern. But there hasn't been any kind of great... I mean, the problem is that the, and I said this before Christmas, the government's strategy on this is just, in uh, it, it's, its public strategy has just been entirely wrong and confusing. Um, it has had a number of choices, um, uh, and one of which was to look uh, as if it was busily involved in the business of trying to kind of sort this out. The, 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 essentially condemning the strikers themselves and the leaders isn't really going to work because you need quite a high threshold uh, of support for these strikes to take place. And I thought at the time, that the big uh, uh, business is is trying to conciliate that section of the of the union membership who might be got to vote for more easily to vote for a settlement against further strike action and that just doesn't seem to be the approach that's been adopted do you agree danny what should rishi sunak's exit strategy here be because you know for the moment the government's line uh, isn't really changing uh do you think they can afford to hold the line particularly against rail workers for the time being look i'm stuck between what i think is the right thing to do and what i think is a strategy that's viable with the general public i, I do in the end think that the general public do want the government to settle um and they're sympathetic to all workers who are on which is almost everybody who's under pressure from the cost of living crisis um I just feel that if we do settle these strikes and uh, at at higher rates and we begin to give people more money, in the end, it'll be a bit like in a football match when somebody starts standing in order to see the view better. Um, the person behind them stands. Eventually, we're all standing and mm. nobody has a better view than they started off with. And that's what will happen if we all give each other um, in inflationary wage settlements. Um, so I, I am completely resolute myself, but it's easy to say that um, when... You know, I'm not a railway worker. I'm actually not a passenger even on these the, the affected rail work, uh, railways. I am on the tube. Um, and uh, I'm not the government either. So uh, it's easy to stand back from it. I don't think the public will sustain them in the positions. I, David had a, had a good point about what your position should be if you wanted to settle. But David should be clear that what you're talking about is 
giving way to some extent to the strikes, right? You, 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 if you, that's what engaging with the strikers and when, when Keir Starmer talks about meeting with the unions, what he really means is put more money on the table. And I, I think that probably is what we're going to have to do eventually. But I am, a, you know, I'm stuck by the fact that I'm against uh, doing it. Uh, as you as you will recall from the Thatcher era, which is all too often quoted at the moment uh, uh, because this is entirely different. But one of the things you do recall is that uh, in the early part of the Thatcher government, uh, there was a moment in the in one of the minor strikes where she saw fit to conciliate because she thought the moment for the fight was not then. Um, and if ever there was a moment not for a fight for government uh, on this issue, uh, on issues like this, it's now. Um, and I've, I've long thought if you want to really deal with the modernisation of the railways, you put it off until the moment when you absolutely ha are in a position to expend the political capital in order to do it. At the moment, this is pointless. And in fact, it is very difficult sometimes for me to look at this government and wonder and think that I know what the point of it is in all kinds of Part of, um, Literally, I, while I kind of broadly, you know that I'm, I've been very critical about lots of things the government has done, but one of the reasons for having a, a Conservative government is that it kind of knows how pointless it is to try to give everybody wage increases because you'll end up giving everybody price increases and no one will be better off. The whole well, country will be worse off. So the purpose of, of the government if you ask that question, is precisely is in fact to hold out against what is ultimately a no. self-defeating, uh, damaging strike that can't help even the people who are going on strike. Now, that having been said, where I agree with you is, I'm not sure that it's a battle they have the political capital because they've spent it all on stupid things to win this. And so therefore it may be, you're right, they have to give in, but I wish that was not the position. But, but 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 the problem is the inflation argument doesn't really apply in these in these particular situations because firstly public sector wages aren't inflationary what they do do is add to the uh, amount of, of public spending that there has to be and if it's inflationary it's only it's not inflationary in the kind of classic inflation spiral in other words we're not back to the 70s where largely it was the private sector that was fueling wage inflation by demands that the by wage demands were happening in the private sector so it's simply not the same so you don't run exactly exactly the same risks it is, as you would it will have done be inflationary before. because people will people will both use it as an exemplar and they will also uh, insist well, on having wage increases that help them to no, 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 match their ex match the increases. There well, isn't very much evidence the private sector will use it as oh, an example. Okay, I well mean, then. So, 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 so essentially, that's so essentially that's rather speculative. And what you have is a real situation now. So, I mean, you, I'm not right. saying you're 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 bound oh, to be wrong. Okay, but I don't no, think the signs are that you're right. Okay, well then let's say that let's say that which is which is, you know, certainly completely plausible. Let's say it's not inflationary because the private sector doesn't match it. What you're then talking about is something even less desirable, which is a redistribution away from hard-pressed workers in other fields towards railway workers who are not objectively, uh, you know, badly paid compared to everyone else. Um, except, and there's not, except there's not that many of them, Danny, so it doesn't really matter. In, it doesn't really matter in, in, quite, that, in quite that sense. Well, and the much, much bigger problem, as we know, is actually within the... With, 
are sections of other workers than it is with rail workers, which was where we started this, uh, where we started this discussion. On which this, is that, I think we can... irritating, it's not everything. On this, guys, I think we can uh, agree to disagree. Getting a lot of texts in about the bread strike Danny Finkelstein has revealed uh, <laughs> to the world. David, I think you're the only person of a certain age who doesn't remember it. Kevin Harrison <laughs> tweets to say, I remember the sliced bread strike of the 70s. My mother started making her own bread. I don't have a car, so no number of rail strikes will put me off using trains. And Bill on the text says, the bread strike was real. It involved the Society of Master Bakers and radio reporters has to be, had to be careful about how they said that. <laughs> uh, and I rehearsed that one in my head several times to avoid the pitfall Bill is talking about there. Uh, now... Let's... And your next interviewee is Jeremy Hunt. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, given that given we're talking about public sector pay rises, if only. Now let's move across the uh, the floor of the Commons, shall we? Uh, twenty twenty three, uh, you know, a year Keir Starmer can look forward to with a massive uh, poll lead. But do you think, uh, David? Let's start with you. That this is a year where Labour will find themselves uh, under the glare of a spotlight. You know, given that the the assumption now in Westminster, and this is a dangerous one for the Conservatives, is that the Tories have almost already lost the next election, probably, and Labour are destined for government in some form. Uh, do you think that presents risks for Labour too? They're now under the full glare of the spotlight as a government I'm, in waiting. I'm going to put it a different way. It's not the full glare of the spotlight <clears throat> that interests me, although I think that will so much, although I think that will happen. I think that what will happen is that for the last year, the Conservative Party has been involved and everything involved and supporting the Conservative Party, which means a large section of the uh, the press, which is uh, generally Conservative supporting, has been engaged in, in fratricide or sororicide or whatever side you like, but anyway, killing each other. Um, and... Uh, it hasn't. It is. It is beginning not to escape their notice that uh, they are heading for uh, an absolutely enormous defeat and, ge and generational defeat if they carry on like this. Now, one of the things that happens under these circumstances is that there will be a row together, not so much to put the spotlight on Labour, but to um, but to discredit Labour. Uh, I mean, some of it will be spotlighting, but some of it will just be a kind of a whole series of the disaster under Keir Starmer and what a dreadful person Keir Starmer is and how Keir Starmer is actually a Trotskyist and uh, and so on and look at it and so on. Uh, so what I think we can expect is a much, much greater concentration on saying, uh, on telling people what Labour's problems are and on concentrating on whatever divisions uh, happen in Labour's camp and so on. Um, uh, and an attempt, a fairly significant attempt, although uh, I have to say Paul Goodman's article in The Times this morning, although highly speculative about a possible return for Boris Johnson, was a sign they haven't quite got over the, the fratricide yet. I think that there will be a kind of significant push in, in, in that direction over the course of the next year, at the very least to say, uh, to be able to say to the uh, electorate by 2024, 2025, um, Labour is so bad that you can't afford to let them have a really big majority. So that the very least you can do is rally back behind the Conservatives. Do you agree, Danny? Well, I think that'll obviously be what the Conservative Party tries to do. My experience in 1996-7, when I was involved in the Conservative Research Department and in, therefore in the Conservative election effort, was that, it was that um, unless you were building off a positive base, it was very difficult to make a negative campaign successful. And I think that's the problem the Conservative Party's going to have. What exactly is it they're going to press Labour on? Fiscal... Uh, fiscal prudence uh, after the Liz Trust government. That's a very difficult thing to do. Uh, immigration, well, again, it's very difficult for the Conservative Party to do that when so many people believe the policy to have failed. So that, 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 
the problem is having a negative campaign off a positive base is very difficult. It's possible that that one thing that will happen this year will be that the Conservative Party and the cons- and, and sort of conservative sympathetic media will begin to 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 sort of round on Labour. But another possibility, which is, again, what did happen in 96, 97, was that those uh, papers, for example, recognised where their readers were going, a situation where nearly half uh, the electorate is saying they're going to vote Labour and only, like, 25% of the electorate is saying they're going to vote Conservative and begin themselves to accommodate to the views of their readers, which is a far more common thing, I think, than, than newspapers leading their readers. Um, so I, I'm not sure... I'm sure that's what the Conservative Party will wish to happen. I'm sure that uh, people on the right wish it to happen, that the Conservative Party consolidates and tries to turn its attention on Labour. But I'm not sure it'll work out in that way. An equally plausible uh, scenario is that... uh, people begin to abandon the Conservative Party who previously was sympathetic to it, and the Conservative Party itself um, begins to turn on itself because nobody can produce the secret of victory. And it's it's interesting because you speak to people in Keir Starmer's inner circle and they're, they're, they're not necessarily happy that they're, they're where they'd like to be. Uh, in the Times yesterday, full disclosure, I wrote this story with, with uh, my colleague Henry Zethman, uh, suggestions that he is keen to uh, get the shadow cabinet uh, up a couple of notches in terms of the impact they're making in the media, concerns that certain members of the shadow cabinet are uh, anonymous and not as well known as they should be and not setting the news agenda as they ought to be. Um, is this a very Westminster bubble concern, David, that people don't necessarily know who the shadow transport secretary is or is there something in this anxiety it's, on Keir Starmer's part that nobody knows who he is or his team is? Patrick, I, I'm slightly inclined to defer to your expertise on this, <laughs> actually. Uh, I must say, rather than rather than my own. I mean, it feels very inner Westminstery because it is absolutely the occupational hazard of the Labour Shadow Transport Secretary <laughs> not to be known by anybody. Um, I, don't, I can't think of any time in history where the Shadow Transport Secretary has been known by a large number of the, a large number of the people. I think, they'd, I think they'd actually have to do a John Stonehouse and walk off a beach in, uh, uh, in Miami in order for anybody to have heard. I mean, so, 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 so no, I mean, I, I imagine what he means is, uh, what is meant by that, but you can tell me, mm. is that they need a few more high-profile policy discussions and debates being led by senior shadow cabinet ministers. The problem is when you're in opposition, it doesn't really totally depend upon you because a lot of it depends on what the government on what the government's doing and what other events are going on. Your notions of what should the future should be are usually going to play second fiddle to what is to crises that are actually happening and things the government is actually having to do and i think that's pretty much an occupational hazard right the way up until a new election is absolutely pending at which point it changes yes nobody knows who the transport secretary is either right i mean obviously i do because that's you know it's my profession to, to know it but um but it but it's people don't know that and they don't know their history. And so um, I, I thought it was a, a misplaced concern. I, I think Kinsama should be much more concerned whether he knows who he is, mm. right, than whether... whether well, as you wrote last week. Yeah. So I think, I think, I think um, what 
you know, for example, Rachel Reeves, everyone said that she's done um, a good job, and I think actually that's true. But again, I don't suppose very many people know who she is. So that's not the right test. The right test is, um, are they preparing Labour in a serious and sober way for government? Do they know, roughly speaking, who they are and what they want to do? Um, And that's a much more... uh, That's the test that he should apply. You know, so take take someone like Nick Thomas-Simmons, whose picture was in there, you know, anonymous, but Nick Thomas-Simmons actually does have a clear knowledge of who he is, um, is a very intelligent, capable person and would be, I'm sure, would be good cabinet minister. So... um, testing whether somebody knows that he's shadow secretary of state for international trade. Mm. Well, people don't know who the minister, you know, the, the secretary of state for international trade is. Um, so it's unlikely they'll know who the shadow is. Yes, and I think I think the the point you've made, Danny, before uh, about Keir Starmer having, you know, there still being big questions around what Keir Starmer uh, not necessarily stands for in in a in a broad brush sense, but you know what his what his views are on the. Uh, on the small print of the policies that any you know new Labour government will uh, will bring in, and what he's likely to do in any given situation. That was Danny Finkelstein and David Aronovich. Remember, you can read them in the Times every week. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box to pick up a digital subscription. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Times Red Box podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Every day this week, while I'm looking after things for Matt Shirley, I'm going to be taking a look under the bonnet of the political year ahead for each of the big UK parties. It's going to be a big one for all of them, with a general election likely to be in the second half of next year, meaning almost everything they do will be seen through the prism of that decisive vote. We'll start uh, with the bigger parties, of course, and who bigger than the government. At the end of the week, of course, we'll, we'll visit some of, the, uh, some of the smaller outfits, but today we're beginning with the Conservatives, one of the oldest and most formidable parties, perhaps the most successful in the democratic world. They've been in power since 2010, but have they run out of steam? Or can they find a way to snatch victory from the jaws of what looks like an increasingly inevitable defeat 
in 2023. To discuss this, I'm joined by three of the wisest Tory watchers out there. Henry Hill is deputy editor of the website Conservative Home. Morning, Henry. Morning. Salma Shah is a former Tory special advisor. She advised Sajid Javid when he was Home Secretary. Morning, Salma. Morning. And to tell us about the electoral challenges ahead, the pollster Patrick English from YouGov. Patrick, from one Patrick to another, good morning. And from one Patrick to another, good morning. And a little while we'll be joined by the former Cabinet Minister and leadership contender David Davis too. But let's start uh, with those polls. Um, Obviously, the long and short of it, Patrick, is uh, they're pretty bad and show little signs of improving. Uh, Tory backbenchers look at them and conclude that their careers uh, may well already be over. Uh, And I may have already answered your question, but just how bad do things look for them as they start the year? Yes, as you quite rightly say, the polls look absolutely awful for the Conservative Party right now. Depending on which polling firm you look at, Labour's lead could be anywhere from around about sort of 18 points and it was about sort of 28 pushing 30. And if that were to be replicated after general election, we'd be looking at an absolute Labour landslide. It'd be an absolute walloping for the Conservatives. However, there's a lot of uncertainty in the polling. There's a huge proportion of those who voted Conservatives in 2019 who are telling us now that they simply don't know who they will vote for or they would not vote in an election if we're being held tomorrow. And furthermore, we're still really don't know where we are in terms of the electoral programme. There is no set date. It could be this year. It could be next year. It could be even the beginning. We could be about two years out. So a lot could possibly change. That said, Labour have had a really big, strong polling lead now for quite some time. It predated Liz Truss, let's not forget the Labour polling, although it's much smaller. So, yes, it doesn't look great for the Conservatives at all right now. No signs really of a big recovery under Rishi Sunak. And if an election were be held, being held tomorrow, we would definitely be looking at a Labour majority for sure. Interestingly, though, Patrick, it's important to remember that while we have a parliamentary system in this country uh, and we don't elect a, a prime minister... Undoubtedly, in the eyes of many voters, general elections are as much contest between two candidates for prime minister as they are between two political parties and two manifestos, perhaps even more so. And might one silver lining be for the Conservatives that Rishi Sunak's numbers are much more resilient and much better, even if they're not brilliant in the, to the extent they were during his uh, time as the pandemic chancellor? Is that one potential silver lining for the Prime Minister and his party that he still polls reasonably well and voters aren't wildly enthusiastic about the alternative in Keir Starmer? Yeah, those are two very, very important points. So firstly, as you say... Labour's polling lead is not about Labour being fantastic in the eyes of the voters. It's about the Conservatives being absolutely terrible. So there is a lot of malleability there. If Conservatives can recover and can start regaining some credibility on key issues such as the economy, the NHS, making immigration and Brexit work in the eyes of the voters, then Labour's lead is very, very soft and could be very vulnerable in that regard. The other super important thing which you've said is Rishi Sunak is a fairly, let's say, relatively comparatively popular politician. Let's cast our minds back to the summer of last year. We had one of the most unpopular prime ministers that we'd ever recorded in our YouGov data, Boris Johnson, who was then replaced with the most unpopular politician that we have ever recorded in YouGov, Liz Truss. And then they replaced them with somebody who the voters thought, actually, you know, you did a quite good job in the pandemic. We had furlough, saved a lot of jobs. 
Rishi Sunak, you're not too bad, you're all right. But the damage to the Conservative Party brand, which was done by those two former leaders, the two former prime ministers, over that summer and autumn of last year, is astronomical. And that's what's holding the Conservative Party down in the polls right now. Even if Rishi Sunak is relatively a much better, more popular leader in the eyes of the public than Johnson and Liz Truss were, and does pretty well in the matchups to Keir Starmer, the brand of the Conservative Party and the record that it now has in the eyes of the public is at the floor. Henry Hill, you know the MPs, you know uh, the councillors, you know the people who uh, who will be facing electoral oblivion should it come. Do they look at these numbers and think there is any potential silver lining or is the consensus now, are they reconciled to um, a pretty bleak showing at the election whenever it may come? So you are starting to get, not necessarily from the MPs, but from some of the advisors and hangers-on, this slight uh, sense of, oh, well, you know, maybe we can do it. Keir Starmer has to outperform Labour in 1997 to win an overall majority. His personal ratings aren't all that good, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. So, so there's there's a sort of creeping sense of hope in some quarters. But I think amongst the people who are on the ground, especially, you know, in the Red Wall and in all those areas where the Tories would really need to hold for this to be realistic, they're just not seeing where that hope is really coming from. Because it's one thing for voters to be maybe slightly undecided about Keir Starmer and everything else, but it's quite another thing to try and look at the year ahead for the Conservatives and work out where the, the policies that are going to close a 20-point polling deficit are coming from. I mean, it's not going to come from, from months of strike action. Um, so the, the question I always ask them to any of these people who think they can do it is, well, OK, what's the proactive stuff that the government's going to do to, to convince voters who took a big chance on the Tories in 2019, millions of them had never voted Conservative before. What are you going to do to persuade those people to put a cross in the box in 2024 and think, yeah, I was right to take a chance on the Tories? And frankly, there has not yet been a good answer forthcoming. Shah, do you think at number 10 uh, are looking at all of this and thinking it could be worse? Uh, Rishi Tunak, the Sunday Times reported over the weekend, is... Very optimistic. I mean, I suppose you'd have to be, otherwise, um, you know, the prospect of two more years of this would be pretty soul-destroying. Um, but how do you think they uh, can, will, should try and reclaim the agenda and improve the headline polling figures, the pretty cataclysmic headline polling figures we're talking about uh, between now and, and this time next year? So there's really interesting things that are happening in politics at the moment in relation to... Um, Rishi Sunak's team and Keir Starmer's team in that they are both relatively new and aren't long in the tooth. So you would expect, you know, a government that's been around as long as this to have very kind of like seasoned people. And of course they don't because we've had so many prime ministers in the last, you know, 10 minutes that you, you, there's been this huge churn. So quite um, the focus is rightly on stabilising what they've got. So what you end up with is quite a technocratic government, which goes back to Henry's point that, you know, people don't really know what they're about and they need to set out a stall and set out an agenda. And that's what, you know, someone seasoned would do. It's not just the tactics. It's actually the big wider strategy and the sell. Um, and, and what does that, what does Rishi Sunak's government, what does his future leadership, what does that actually encapsulate and what does that mean? So I think it's really important to understand that actually the people that are around there are fairly new. Um, and this is going to sort of lead into some of the problems 
that you're going to see coming down the track. Now, as to my own opinion on what we need to do, you will have seen, and it indeed in the Times, are people talking about sort of a return to Thatcherism and this idea that we need to borrow from what happened in 79 and in the 80s. I think that sort of misplaces where we are in the electoral cycle and it also misplaces where conservatism is at the moment. But fundamentally, as Henry pointed out, what is the offer? And if you're going to have a conservative offer, then it's got to be about capital, right? What What is the government doing about home ownership? What is the government doing about prospects and opportunity and job creation and higher skilled employment? And that is the kind of stuff that actually matters, uh, where people are going to start thinking about themselves and how their lives are improving. And if Rishi can actually harness that in some way and make that real, real and palatable to people, and it's this really short timescale that he has, so it's pretty difficult to do that, I think he may have a chance with distinguishing himself from Keir Starmer as a doer, rather than someone who's technocratically presiding over problems. Right. Thank you very much, Salma. I think you're completely right, uh, by the way, about the redundancy of comparisons between Rishi Sunak and, and Mrs Thatcher, particularly, you know, Mrs Thatcher was embarking on that war with the unions at the very start of her uh, her, uh, her premiership and we're, we're now at the tail end of uh, 12 years of Conservative government and the legislative picture as well is obviously completely different. Let's speak now to the former Cabinet Minister and leadership contender, David Davis. David, good morning. Morning. Um, Remind us, David, I don't think you've said yet, and perhaps we can get the exclusive out of you this morning. Are you going to stand at the next election? Ah, yes, I am. I have actually said on a number of occasions, uh, and so I'm not one of the uh, the flop the leaving this time. Um, and partly because, uh, having listened to the last few minutes of your programme, I rather disagree with one of some of your colleagues. I think uh, I think we've got a, a good, no, good's too strong. We've got a chance of winning, and I think it needs it needs some of us to put our shoulder to the wheel to make it happen. Well, when you say putting one shoulder to the wheel, what does that look like? What what should the government be doing that it's not doing right now? What you know, what is what would be your three point plan for saving the Conservative Party from the doldrums it finds itself well, it, in right now? It, it's sort of four or five points, really. I mean, number one, they've got to get the economy right. I mean, they're they uh, Sunak's already stabilised it uh, via Hunt's um, uh, budget, um, and in doing so, he's created some leeway. We'll see how much in March, April, uh, some leeway for a more growth-oriented budget in in, uh, in in the spring. Number one, that's that. Number two, they've got to do something fairly dramatic about the migration crisis. Now, dramatic doesn't mean an all an all singing, all dancing solution, but it means a significant change. That's why some of us argued on the Albanian front of, of uh, declaring Albania a safe country and just saying, you know, you can't claim asylum from Albania. Uh, number three, uh, they've got to get through, in some ways the hardest, they've got to get through this uh, winter of strikes. Um, I think to some extent this will, uh, it's not going to be a very pleasant winter from that point of view, but I think the public are going to get rather tired of people damaging public services and uh, and claiming rights for themselves that everybody else hasn't got. That's the public service unions. Um, four, uh, he's got to start to get the NHS back on its feet. Um, I mean, it's, there's no doubt. I mean, what with the excess death levels, with the delays on 
uh, on uh, conventional treatment, on testing and so on, not just the ambulance delays, the, the more general delays have got to be good. We've got to at least start on that. Uh, we won't solve that before the election, but the trajectory has got to be in the right direction. And the, fi- the fifth point really is to try and cut down on the number of unforced errors. I mean, I'm, I'm afraid the uh, the trust era was well one big unforced error really, and 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 Boris's um, uh, cabinet before that was was also a bit prone to make too many mistakes. And one of your colleagues, I think, talked about a technocratic government. Well, I don't know about technocratic. It's just got to be competent to, to do the, the normal day-to-day work without creating crises. Those are, those are the sort of five things. That, they're not terribly exciting, but they go right to the point of what does, what does a would-be elector next time, somebody who voted Tory last time, what will they be looking for if they're going to vote Tory next time? And that is the prospects of a better a better life in terms of the money they take home. That means a better economy. It means being able to trust the NHS. That's uh, straightforward enough in terms of outcome. Uh, and it means uh, some sort of a solution uh, to the migrant crisis, which I think about 85% of the public uh, are really quite cross about. Who, who do you think will turn on him first, David, if he doesn't fulfil uh, those those promises those criteria you've set him. Who's likely to turn in first, MPs or the public? I mean, the public have already appeared to have turned on the Conservative Party. Mm. Do you think your colleagues have uh, rediscovered the virtue of patience since uh, the Johnston Trust era? Well, I don't think... I mean, apart from some sort of non-stop journalistic rumbling about the return <laughs> of Boris, God help us, frankly, um, uh, the, uh, the, I, don't think, I don't think there is a big appetite to turn on Rishi. We've got two years, you know, uh, we've had a record number of prime ministers in one year. I mean, if we decide we're going to change again, the public will lose faith. Lose faith with it. Doesn't matter. You know, we could we could elect the archangel Gabriel. It wouldn't matter. Uh, we would not be returning uh, as a government next time if we did that. So actually, uh, the very uh, the very sort of fragility of the position in a way uh, gives Rishi more scope, more power, more decision making ability. I think he realises. I mean, the truth is. If anything, I think he's been too kindly to some of the uh, small factions. I mean, the, the the concession on onshore wind farms, I think, was unnecessary. Um, concession on housing, that's a toss of a coin. But, you know, he, he's got scope to make lots of decisions and carry the party with him. And I think... Uh, and I think the closer we get to the election, the more that's going to be true. If you look back, I mean, look back at the, the previous worst case outcome. I mean, people try to compare this to 97. I don't think it's anything like 97. I was there. Uh, this is, you've got the gap between uh, Tories and Labour is broad but shallow. It can, it can narrow very quickly. That wasn't like that in 97. But one of the reasons it wasn't like it in 97 is because although the government did a very, very good job of recovering the economy from the disaster of the ERM crisis, they did a fantastically good job. Even the even Tony Blair's um, economic advisor said that it was the best economy any government incoming government ever inherited. We didn't get any credit for it because we we're fighting ourselves all the time. So I think you know one of the lessons for my colleagues is buckle down uh, and make this work. Because the one thing that matters is not whether it's right or left, uh, it's, it's whether, uh, or indeed north or south, it's, it's whether it's successful. 
if the government can be seen to succeed on migration, even partially, if it can be seen to get a grip of the problems of the National Health Service, it can be seen to create the prospect of improvement. It doesn't have to be a massive difference uh, on the economy. Those are things people will cling to, but it will only happen if the Conservative Party as a whole gets behind it. And what about David Davis, um, a subject that's close to to your heart, Brexit? Jacob Rees-Mogg was out about yesterday saying that uh, criticising the government for not doing more to move to rip up EU regulations quicker. Obviously, the bonfire of uh, EU law Rishi Sunak promised in his leadership campaign last summer hasn't happened yet and is unlikely to happen uh, for some time. Are you concerned that... uh, Rishi Sunak, who you know, risked his career, he would say, to back Brexit as a young MP in 2016, hasn't done enough to to uh, to you know use what George H. W. Bush would call the vision thing to sell out his vision for post Brexit Britain. Well, I mean, I'm afraid if if that's if that's an accusation, it's an accusation that's levelled more accurately levelled at both uh, both the governments that Jacob served in. Um, the the simple truth is that uh, there's lots to be done on Brexit yet. Uh, but in the next two years, if I were if I were Rishi's position, I would be focusing, as he is, on the uh, the big changes that can come from, from removing bits of European legislation. I mean, we can get rather techy about it, the Solvency II directive and all that sort of thing, mm. um, to actually uh, uh, loosen up the ability of our major sectors, whether it's pharmaceuticals, uh, or AI, uh, or the city to some extent, um, uh, those areas where we've already predominant in, in world terms. I mean, we are the third biggest um, uh, destination for uh, high-tech investment after uh, America and China, and that we want to play into those things. If we do that, that'd be much more useful than, than having a sort of uh, tearing up every small regulation. I mean, we wrote some of those regulations. So, my view is, yes, we should get on with making the best of Brexit. That, that's what we ought to be doing. But that doesn't mean sort of headline grabbing things about tearing up every regulation so much as tearing up the ones that matter and replacing them with better regulations that suit our national interest. That's a much more targeted, um, uh, but dare I say, it, a less journalistic process. It's a process which is about good management rather than headline seeking. Well, David Davis, since you're uh, since you're knocking our journalistic inquiry, only joking. Uh, we'll let you go, but thanks very much for joining us to uh, to share your thoughts on the uh, the road ahead for the Conservatives in 2023 this morning. You're lo- you're welcome to to stay and eavesdrop on the rest of our discussion. Henry Hill, Deputy Editor, Conservative Home. Let's return to you, Paul Goodman has a piece David Davis mentioned. It's in the Times this morning on uh, the return or not of Boris Johnson. And I I wanted to put this line to you in particular, Henry. It isn't hard to see how Boris Johnson could step up the pressure on Rishi Sunak during the coming months if, for example, he chose over any accommodating deal that Sunak strikes over the Northern Ireland Protocol, that Johnson agreed the latter would not necessarily prove an obstacle. There's an expectation uh, that Rishi Sunak has to resolve that trade dispute with uh, the European Union over the Northern Ireland Protocol and the border it imposes in the Irish Sea. Do you think that will inevitably lead from the uh, from the well of dissenters on the Tory backbenches that, to claims of betrayal that Rishi Sunak has sold out Brexit? Do you think that's a potential flashpoint for the Prime Minister in the months ahead? I mean, 
I think it would be if he got a deal through, but I actually don't think he's going to, because the crucial thing to remember about any deal over the protocol is that it's not just the government and it's not just the EU. The DUP need to agree to it, because if they don't agree to it, then they won't go back into Stormont and all of the problems Northern Ireland is facing will persist. Now, I think that the balance of opinion in the government is that there is no point going to bat for a deal and expending political capital on a deal that the DUP don't end up backing. And simultaneously, I've heard nothing to suggest that they're going to get terms from the European Union that the DUP will accept. So I actually, for all that the, the Rishi Sunak has talked about the importance of getting this sorted out in time for the 25th anniversary of the Belfast Agreement, I actually don't think a deal is necessarily on the table. If there was, given that the EU hasn't reopened their negotiating mandate, then yes, I do think that would leave Rishi vulnerable to charges, albeit from people, as you say, who actually signed up to the original deal in the first place. Uh, Salma Shah... David Davis there was confident that the warring tribes of the Tory party would pull together. Um, Is that wishful thinking? I'm afraid to say that I think that is an an attempt at being positive because obviously (laughs) David Davis is a Tory MP at the end of the day. You know, he has to he has to uh, toe the line, as it were. Um, I think, you know, he mentioned something on uh, planning reform uh, and, you know, the fact that they had the, the government had to drop uh, lots of planning reform uh, legislation because they couldn't get all their MPs behind it. And this is going to be a perennial issue on the back benches, and which is going to be especially be exacerbated if Boris Johnson wants to make a comeback. And, you know, it's stymie every attempt um, to get the economy moving, to deal with backlogs or whatever it might be to show that this is a competent government. So... <coughs> There's going to have to be some kind of take uh, for, or some kind of approach from Downing Street that is about discipline and keeping these backbenchers um, on side, which doesn't seem to be, uh, it doesn't seem to be apparent, really, that that discipline exists at the moment. So people are kind of holding it together because Rishi's a new prime minister. We've gotten this crisis with the economy through with this difficult budget. But you can see with a really bold legislative agenda that a session of parliament which they've just had to extend because there's so much in there there are lots of opportunities for trouble it doesn't necessarily just have to be on the northern irish protocol it could be around local election time it could be about around the various bits of huge legislation that are coming forward where backbenchers could attempt to um to create trouble and deny uh number 10 their their legislative objectives so you know I, th- I think there's still a rocky road ahead. Henry, do you agree? Has discipline totally broken down? Yeah, more or less. I think the thing, the, the, the problem for Rishi Sunak is that while Tory MPs eventually elected him as leader by default, there was no sense in which they thought they'd pledged himself to um, any kind of legislative programme. Um, in, in any event, he didn't really, he's abandoned most of the stuff that he floated during the summer. And yeah, after 12 years in office, the, the Conservative Party is just divided along so many different axes. There are so many accumulated resentments and divisions that you can find a group of MPs large enough to sink almost anything if they really put their, put their mind to it. And Rishi, unfortunately, is trying to lead the Conservative Party from a position of weakness, which is really, really difficult to do. Generally speaking, if you want to keep Conservative MPs united, you start from a position of strength. And then generally, most of them are fine doing what they're told most of the time. But if you start weak, you can't really bargain your way to a united Conservative Party. That's just not how it works. 
Uh, Patrick English, final word to you. There's a bigger, or rather there's a, an intermediate electoral test between now and the general election we've been talking about for the past half hour, and that's the, that's the local elections in May. Um, they are, it should be said from the outset, in the sort of councils where Tories do badly historically, you know, the metropolitan boroughs, um, but also sort of Tory true blue, Tory district councils mm-hmm. as well. Um, is it a given that we'll see a pretty pretty abysmal night for the Tories then on current polling? Well, yes, as you say, we have the local elections coming up and it is an absolutely fascinating set of councils, really. There's about 7,000 wards, we think, up for election in the coming cycle, including, as you say, lots of places where Labour tends to do well, those metropolitan district councils, but also a whole raft of brand new unitary authorities or whole unitary authorities going up for election. So there's a lot of interesting different baselines and different types of councils going up. And I think, based on the current polling, it doesn't look too good for the Conservatives at all, not least because if we cast our minds back to 2019 and this sort of election cycle was happening in its most comparable sense, that was the, the same day that the Conservatives fell into fifth place in the European elections, which were, of course, counted a little later in the month, owing to different countries counting different uh, voting at different times. But so this, that was an absolute bottom pit for the Conservatives as well, as sort of the lower of Theresa May's um, premiership. So we're comparing to an already very bad night for the Conservatives. So if they did even worse than that, the Conservative Party really would be in a very, very, very sticky position. It would suggest that the rot has set in quite fundamentally in many of their heartland seats. If they're starting to lose councils to the Liberal Democrats in the South, if they start to lose some of those minority controls in the North, particularly in the Red Wall, we're thinking, well, I'd be looking very carefully at Dudley. Darlington, Walsall. These are the kind of areas where if Labour is going to do well in the next election, they're going to be looking at doing quite well on those councils. If they're taking Walsall, by the way, they're having a fantastic night. And that includes a very important constituency, well, potential constituency, depending on boundary changes, at the next election in Walsall South. So keep an eye on that and see how Labour do there and how the Conservatives fare there. Because it'll be a good yardstick, I think, if Labour are going to get to a majority. Let's not forget the scale of that task that they have to do to go from their worst result in generations in 2019 to a majority of their own, which they haven't managed since 2005, is astronomical. But if they're doing well in places like Walsall, if they're taking back Dudley, if they're taking Darlington, then the signs would suggest that they're doing well on the Red Wall and they're taking some of those old margins that they need to build a majority on. So, yes, it would look like the Conservatives are set for a bad night. They could be losing out to Labour in the North, Liberal Democrats in the South. I wouldn't I wouldn't look forward to them too much if I was Rishi Sunak, no. Well, something of a perfect storm. And it should be said, we'll be talking about that big, big challenge uh, for the Labour Party tomorrow as well. That's all we've got time for on this week's Times Red Box podcast. Remember to like or subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. 
That's stamps.com code program.